Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's Message of the Week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome to week two in our autumn series, There is Hope, from the book of Isaiah. Last week, we started in the obvious place of chapters 54 and 55, because why not? And we looked at how God has promised and is faithful to always be kind when we turn to him, no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in. It was a wonderful place to start. Um, And we read together two whole chapters of this book as a torrent of divine blessing and provision flowed towards the people of God as a result of what the hero of the book, the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, has done in chapter 53. And we were encouraged, weren't we? I was encouraged. One or two other people in the room were encouraged uh, as we did this. And uh, today we're going to start in a more conventional place when you're beginning a new series. We are going to chapter one. Thank you. And uh, we are asking today this question, which has its own slide. What is God looking for? What is God looking for? And in a moment, we're going to read some of the Bible together, and we're going to see what Isaiah has to say about it. But I want to encourage you just for a moment before we do that, think in your own head. If you're an extrovert and the person, you know the person next to you, you can turn to them and talk to them. Ten seconds. What is God looking for? Well, how would you answer that question if you were asked? Have Have a think for a moment. I'm not trying to catch anyone out. It's always important to say that when you ask a question at the beginning of a talk. I wonder how easy you find that question to answer. Over the years, I've spent lots of time with people um, looking into faith, seeking faith. Uh, One of my favorite things I've ever done in my life is run alpha courses. And um, one of the questions that I've often been asked is this, and particularly by people who aren't sure there's a God. Uh, One particularly vocal uh, atheist who came on an Alpha course with me, and he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, why does God want everyone to worship him? That's a good question. I mean, is that what God's looking for? Is he looking for worshipers? He said, said, isn't that a bit weird that God would just want everyone to worship him? I mean, what's wrong with him? Is he insecure? He said, I mean, does God just need to be told how good he is all of the time? Interesting. He said, is he that self-centered? He thinks everyone should just be looking at him all of the time. And I'm sitting there going, these are good questions. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to respond to you. Pretty sure you're wrong. But I'm not going to love you. We're going to talk about this. I said, they're great. You did what you do on Alpha. I said, those are great questions. What does everybody else think? And we had a fascinating conversation about what God might be looking for. And today we're going to come to Isaiah. Isaiah has something to say about that question. And so we're going to see something of an answer to this question, what is God looking for? And together we might also begin to understand what truly pleases God. You want to go on that adventure together? Excellent. You guys are warming up. I'm enjoying this. Keep replying. Very few of my questions are ever rhetorical when I stand at the front of this room. Um, If you've got a Bible, why don't you get it out? If you've got a device that has the Bible on, that is working well. We're going to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. I am kind, so it will come on the screen as well. We're going to read 
verses 10 through to 20 of Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. I do, you might not know Sodom and Gomorrah. You might do. You probably don't need too much Bible knowledge to have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's just say he's insulting them at this point. Shall we? These are cities God destroyed because of heinous, heinous crimes. And he's saying to the people of God, you're like Sodom and Gomorrah. Like you should be insulted if someone says that to you. That's how this starts. We start on a good note, aren't we? Isaiah is insulting the people who are listening to him. This is what he says. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Doesn't get too much better from the insulting beginning, does it? He's come out shooting. And in many ways, this first chapter is sort of setting the scene for everything that's going to come. If you journey through Isaiah this term, if you read as we're going along, you will find that statements like what we've just read are fairly commonplace in this book. The summary, if I may, is that God despises and rejects their acts of worship. The people of God are doing the acts of worship they think they should, and God despises, it's a strong word, isn't it, and rejects them. And what we see here is if that you don't have the reality of what God is like being worked out in your life, then your worship, your prayer, and your offerings are rejected. Today, friends, is a heavy message. Worship 
divorced from obedience to God is sin. That's what you've just read. Just, I know that just landed heavily. Just shake a second because I'm going to say it in different words. Worship without pursuing righteousness is hypocritical. Worship without seeking justice causes God to turn his back. If I was sitting in Alpha with my atheist friend, I might turn here. I feel like he might have enjoyed this passage. For all the worship of the people of God, for all their extravagant offerings, it did not make up for or excuse the way they were oppressing and overlooking the weak, the vulnerable, and the forgotten in their land. They served the God who would leave the 99 to rescue the one, but they were perfectly content with the 99. They served the God who put the 99 safe and sound to rescue the one from the thicket, but they were perfectly happy as the 99 to kill and eat the one. God is not happy with these people. And he's not happy with them because they did not look like him. That makes sense of what we just read? Really, this chapter, the whole of chapter one, is a courtroom scene. I, full disclosure, am going to court on Tuesday. Been called for jury service. Very excited. Hopefully they let me out afterwards. And, uh, and so courtrooms are somewhat in my mind. This is a courtroom scene. In a courtroom, you've got the, the hammer, right? And what we've got here is a scene set up. You've got Isaiah. He is God's prosecutor. And he has been sent to the people of God, and he is telling them the crimes they have committed. He is prosecuting the people of God. They are in the dock. And the list of crimes is, as we've just seen, long and tragic. And it climaxes. Like the culmination of all their crimes comes to this phrase, which should put terror in your heart. Your hands are full of blood. And there's a beautiful double meaning going on because he's just been talking about all the sacrifices, which were very bloody. But what you discover in the verses afterwards is that it isn't the blood of animals. It's the blood of their brothers and sisters that has stained their hands. Their hands are full of blood. It's the blood of the orphan. It's the blood of the widow. It's the blood of the oppressed and the downtrodden. The people of God didn't care. And so they found themselves in court. The people of God didn't act. And so they found themselves in court. The people of God were so unlike their God that they found themselves in court. There's no question as you read through they're guilty. There's no argument that comes back. There's no reasonable doubt. 
And as you read, as you read about their hands being red with blood, what you're waiting for is you're waiting for the verdict. You're waiting for the hammer to fall. You're waiting for the judgment. You're waiting for the sentence. They are guilty. Where's it coming? Their hands are full of blood. They've been caught red-handed. You read it and you're like, you're waiting for the hammer. You're waiting for the justice. And there's a challenging piece of background information I just want to put out there for us. Which is, for the nation at this point, Isaiah is prophesying to Judah, which is the, the nation of Israel that David and Solomon were kings of, divided into two. There's Israel and Judah. At this point, Israel is kind of getting beaten up and taken over. Judah's living in mortal danger. This, this, this nation of Judah that he's speaking to has enjoyed through the reign of King Uzziah, who's going to pop up in a few chapters' time in, in Isaiah, the most prosperous period of their history since the days of Solomon. And in the days of Solomon, they didn't count silver because they had so much. Everything was made of gold. Just gives you an idea of how prosperous it was under Solomon. This point in time where Isaiah is speaking to the people is the most prosperous time since then. They have plenty. And so when God says, I've had lots of sacrifices, they got plenty of rams to choose from. It's quite easy to offer a ram when you've got lots. It's a prosperous time. All is going well. They have plenty. And here's a nugget of wisdom for you. In times of prosperity, it can be very difficult to see what really matters. You can write that one down. It's not mine. But you can quote me if you like. In times of prosperity, it can be very difficult to see what really matters. In times of hardship, what really matters becomes very clear. My case in point is the nation's response to the death of Queen Elizabeth when families are making up around the nation. Because suddenly, in a moment of national hardship, we've discovered what really matters. You can be rich and in hardship. It's not just rich and poor. It's times of prosperity when all things are going well. It masks what really matters. It's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, other way around. To Jesus, not me. Times of prosperity mask what truly matters. Times of hardship reveal it. For the people of God, their time of prosperity has masked what really mattered. We see this later in the scriptures. If you go to Revelation, Jesus is sending letters to seven churches. The church in Laodicea gets a letter from Jesus. This one's on, on a slide, Sam. And in chapter 3 of verse 17 in Revelation, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. In times of prosperity, what really matters is difficult to see. The church in Laodicea, living in a time of prosperity, they've got more than enough. They think they're doing well. They don't need a thing. Remind you of any other times in history? Like now? The wealthiest moment on the face of the earth ever? We're rich. We've acquired wealth. We don't need a thing. 
But God says, hey, from my perspective, let me tell you what you look like. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Times of prosperity mask what really matters. The people that Isaiah is prophesying to think they've got it made because they've got more than enough. But Isaiah says to them, you are measuring against the wrong scale. And I've labored the point, right? I'm trying to get us to feel the weight of what Isaiah is saying, but I don't think I've managed it yet. And so what I've done is I've translated the first few verses of this passage that we've read into the 21st century. Are you ready? You might want to get, well, you're not going to be comfortable in a couple of minutes' time, so. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. All your singing. What is it to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of your spiritual gifts and your clapping. I have no pleasure in the raising of hands and your holy moments. When you appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless words. Your standing order payments are detestable to me. Sunday gatherings, prayer evenings, midweek groups, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your best-selling books and your chart-topping songs, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Lands a little closer to home, doesn't it? Now, the great irony of this passage is that in verse 12, God says, when you come to before me with all these things, who's asked this of you? Do you know how the Israelites would have responded? You. God, you told us to do this. We've got your book. Moses wrote it all down. We're just doing what you said. You said, bring me the ram and burn it and stick a fork in and the priests can eat it and burn incense and bring the first 10% and give it to the temple. We're doing what you said. Like none of the things they were doing are bad. In fact, they're all good. Singing, praying, gathering, offering, like those things are good. God instructs them. God instructed everything that they were doing in worship. It's just they'd selectively torn pages out of what God had said. Because, yeah, God said, offer a ram. Yes, God said, offer the fattened calf. Yes, God said, burn incense. But he also said, care for the orphan. He also said, care for the widow. He also said, welcome the refugee. He told them that the earth wasn't theirs. They were only looking after it and they needed to share it with one another. It's just they didn't like those bits. And so they didn't do them. 
And so when they came and do the things that they thought they needed to do, they find out that that is not enough. God doesn't want you to tear pages out of your Bible and do the bits you like. God didn't want the Israelites to tear pages out of the law and do the bits they liked. When you've got plenty of rams, bringing one of your rams to the temple is a very easy thing to do. When you've got loads of money, buying something that you're going to set fire to is easy. Much harder to live with mercy and compassion and justice. And so we find ourselves back in the courtroom. Perhaps we have a better understanding now together of the jeopardy the people of God are facing as Isaiah stands and prophesies against the nation. They have been caught red-handed, perpetrators of injustice, guilty. They've neglected their call to compassion. They have neglected their call to righteousness. They have neglected their call to fight on behalf of others who cannot fight for themselves. God didn't say, be nice people. He said, fight for the defenseless. Just the Israelites were fighting for themselves. Not for the oppressed, the widow, the weak. And so we're there. Your hands are full of blood. We're like, man, the hammer is about to come. And just as judgment should fall, grace intervenes. I mean, I'm like, man, these guys are scum. God, you should send them somewhere bad. Like, tell them. Like, lightning bolts from heaven or something. I mean, he's just started Sodom and Gomorrah, so raining sulfur from the air could be fitting in this circumstance. Right? The hammer. Come on, they're guilty. I'm the only one. Longing for justice. And yet, just as the hammer is about to hit, grace rushes in. It's like Isaiah the barrister, I don't know if it's actually like this, but on the TV it is, leans over and says, Psst, people of God, do you want to settle? And God sends Isaiah with this out-of-court settlement for his people that is far better than they could ever have imagined in their wildest dreams. Did you notice it? Did you notice the out-of-court settlement in verse 18? I've got a nice slide with it all on. It says, though your sins are like scarlet, red-handed, covered in blood, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Friends, grace rushes in, and grace is the cool, refreshing water on a hot and exhausting day. I mean, I've never stood in the guilty dock. Uh, I've never been accused in court. I imagine it must be terrifying. But when your defense attorney calls you down because you've got a settlement that turns it all around, I mean, the relief, the refreshing, the the joy that must accompany that is vast. And and as quickly as grace intervenes, we're left hanging. I'm like, God, I want to be clean. The nation of Israel is like, okay, God, we want it. 
<laughs> yes, we want your out-of-court settlement. Where do we sign? Give me the paper. I've got my hands are red. I can sign it right now. How does it work? And all of a sudden, grace goes quiet again. There's no answer as to how this happens in this chapter. And you turn the page and you find exactly the same thing again. And as a chapter after chapter, judgment, damnation, guilt, judgment. And again and again, you find rumors of promise. Again and again, you find hints of grace. Again and again, you find vivid pictures that make you go, that's what I want, not this. And the tension builds as you read Isaiah. And I'm, I told you last week, there are some bits that like, you either need to rush through very quick or make sure you're reading something else at the same time, because it is heavy. And you just keep going and going. And you find that again and again, it's mentioned that there's one coming who's going to help. There is one coming who will rise up. There is one coming who's going to turn it all on its head. There is one coming. And what we discover is that there is one coming who will grant forgiveness, though they stand guilty. There is one coming who will make their hands clean, though they are full of blood. And he'll do it by wiping their hands on himself. And then shedding his own blood. And as his blood is poured out, they are washed clean. Grace is like a refreshing drink of water on a very hot day. And this side of the cross, we sit here and we feel very smug because we've got the story laid out in full. We see the way Jesus came. We see the way that although the people of God barely ever looked like God, Jesus revealed the Father fully. He was the spitting image of what God is like. We see that the means of being made white was his death. That he died the death of a guilty man, despite being totally innocent. We find that in that act, as nails went through his wrists, he took upon himself the failure, the evil deeds, the injustice of many, and he suffered its death. We find that in doing that, he purchases forgiveness for anyone who would come to him, that they might be white instead of red. If you feel like you are red-handed this morning, there is one who can make you clean. If your soul is weighed down by guilt this morning, there is one who can dis declare you innocent. If you look into the future with fear because you do not know what it holds, there is one who can grant you peace because he writes it. His name is Jesus. And so should we return to our initial question? What is God looking for? What we're going to find, friends, as we read Isaiah together, is that God is looking for a people to call his own. He's looking for a people to love and to know and to be loved and known by. He's looking for children that he will adopt 
and who will miraculously come to look like him. I was at a, a 40th birthday party yesterday, and there were like 100 people there. Most of them are people I've not seen for 10 to 15 years. These were friends of mine from university, a couple of years older than me. Let me tell you this. You couldn't move for the children running. There were children. It was like a flood of children had invaded the hall. Like every step you took, you had to look lest you stand on a child. And I'd look at a child that I just nearly stepped on and I'd, you look like someone I once knew. And I'd walk again and then I'd trip over a child. And as I turned to say, watch where you're going, I'd say, you look like someone that I used to know. And this whole building is full of people I knew and people who look like the people that I knew. Kind of. In many cases, this weird merging of two people I used to know, as tends to happen with gatherings again of university friends. Children that look like their parents. God's looking for a people who would look like him. God is looking for a people who would reveal him to the world around them. The prophet Habakkuk, a number of decades later, puts it like this. He wants the knowledge of God's glory to cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. I don't know when the last time you went to the beach was. Last time I went, the entire sea was covered with water. Very difficult not to be. What does God want? He's looking for a people that will so reveal him to the world that the entire planet will be covered with a knowledge of who he is and what he's like. He's not looking for minions that will shout and tell him how great he is. He's looking for children that he can love and that will love him and that will reveal him to the world. And this is, friends, is the story of the scriptures. It's the language of Adam and Eve being made in the image of God. They looked like him and they were to display it to the world. It's the story of Abraham who receives from God a promise that though he and his wife are old and childless, they will have more descendants than they could ever count. That from them would come a great nation and God would bless that nation and every nation on the earth would be blessed. That through the descendants of Abraham, the whole world would see this God who blesses. God is looking for a people that will display him to the world. If you turn the page to Isaiah chapter 2, you will find that God is looking for a people that will be raised up higher than all the other mountains. Do you know what the thing about a high mountain is? You can see it from everywhere. And God's purpose is that these people would be visible to the whole world, displaying what he's like. And so the whole world will rush to him. They'll come to him and say, we want what you've got. God is looking for a people to love and be loved by. A people to know and be known by. A people who will look like him and reveal him to the world. Friends, I've got news for us. We can't do it. Because we're red-handed. Our hands are full of blood. 
each of us has overlooked the weak. Each of us has pushed another down to get up. Each of us has preferred ourselves over the others. But just like there was hope for Judah, there is hope for us. We can come to Jesus, the one who makes us clean. Our worship of Jesus, that was beautiful this morning. And our willing obedience to God are not to try and earn something. But friends, they're the response to the grace that we've discovered in our God. We're not trying to do it to get clean. We're doing it because somehow he has made us clean. The obedience God's looking for in our lives is not something that we must grit our teeth and summon up. It's something that flows as we realize just how good God is and how generous he has been to us. You know, it's really difficult to understand grace when your picture of God is too small. It's very difficult to understand grace when our picture of ourselves is too big. We don't preach like this all of the time here, if you're a guest. It's just it's the passage that someone gave me. That was me, for those of you that don't get that joke. I gave myself this passage. But friends, it's true. We come to Jesus. And in Jesus, we see that God is far bigger and far better and far more loving and far more gracious than we could ever have imagined. The out-of-court settlement that we've been offered is better than your wildest dreams. And as we recognize that, we realize, oh, I really needed that settlement. Oh, the hammer was going to fall. I was red-handed. But for the grace of God, I was in trouble. What is God looking for? He's looking for people to display his goodness across the face of the earth out of a response of receiving his grace. It's in responding to God's awesome grace, friends, that our hearts come alive. You find worshipping God difficult, you need to understand grace a little bit more. You need to understand just how good he is. It's in response to God's awesome grace that we can learn to do what is right. To seek justice. To defend the oppressed. To take up the cause of the fatherless to plead the case of the widow, to reveal what our God is like to a world that desperately is in need of finding out. Can I invite you to stand? We're going to pray in a moment. We're going to worship. I want to invite you to connect with God for yourself, whatever you find helpful to do that. You might find hands out or eyes closed. Turn your hearts to the Lord for a moment, friends. God is amongst us. The God of grace, the God of generosity, the God of forgiveness, the God who washes us white as snow. He's present by his spirit. He's done it through his son, Jesus Christ. And he's revealing what he's like amongst us right now by his spirit. And I want to pray for us, friends. I want to pray that we would see just how good God is. I want to pray that we would be overwhelmed once again by the lavish 
and extravagance of his grace. And that as we see his grace, we might better reflect him to the world that in 10 minutes we will walk back out into. That we will love and know him, the one who loves and knows us, and display him to a world desperately in need of seeing the God of the universe. If you feel red-handed this morning, if you feel the weight of guilt on your heart, come to Jesus. He's the one who washes as white as snow. You cannot scrub it off yourself. But through his sacrifice on the cross, he makes us clean. If that's news to you, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. If you've come here this morning heavy laden, you felt bad and you felt guilty. I'm not trying to make you leave the same way. I want to give you the key that lets you leave here walking on air. His name is Jesus. And I'd love you, please, come find me. Come find me quick. I've got to leave quick today. And I'd love to pray with you and tell you some more about Jesus.